0: Well, good morning and welcome to West Houston Bible Church for our Sunday morning worship service. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight a couple of important announcements that you should have read on the screen ahead of time, but uh, often people get too busy visiting and they miss that. There won't be any Bible class this Thursday night. I will be leaving to go to the WHW... a conference on biblical exposition in the morning and teaching out there all week. So we will have class on Tuesday night. Uh, David Dunn will be here. There will be a ladies' uh, prayer brunch on Saturday morning, October the 14th, at, here at the church at 1030 in the morning. And you're instructed to bring a sack lunch and beverage and dessert will be provided. If I were you, I'd just leave the lunch at home. The desserts are, you know, killer. There will also be an evangelism and witnessing workshop here on Saturday morning, October 21st. We'll begin about 9, we'll conclude about noon. I will do some basic teaching on biblical background and verses and other things on witnessing. And then Gene Brown is going to talk about some practical methods for evangelism. This is open to everybody, but we're not going to have child care that morning. I think that's it. Okay, before we begin, we need to go to the Lord in prayer and dedicate this service to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we're indeed grateful that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together, that in this nation we still have the freedom to proclaim Your Word, to study Your Word, and to uh, worship You. Father, we pray that that might continue and that in our nation people might not take for granted the freedoms that we have, but we may honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice to secure and preserve those freedoms for us. Father, we thank you for your word above all things because that gives us the basis for freedom, which is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross where he paid for our sins. Now, Father, we dedicate this service to you that we may worship you and honor you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, our first hymn is entitled, O Worship the King. It's hymn number 10 in your hymnal. It is a hymn that was written by Robert Grant. in 17, He lived from 1779 to 1838. I want to begin several weeks going. I'm going to start a new process of explaining some things about the, these hymns so that when you sing them, you can sing them with a little intelligence. Too often we just get up, sing the words, and we don't know anything about the background. Psalm 47, 6 and 7 is the basis for this hymn, which that verse reads, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. The word worship in the title of worship to King is a contraction of an old English word, worth-ship. And it denoted the giving of reverent praise to an object of superlative value. True worship, then, is an act by redeemed man, the creature, toward God his creator, whereby his will and intellect gratefully responds to the revelation of God's person expressed in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit has illuminated our minds to God's revelation. Robert Grant, who wrote this hymn, described himself and all of us in the hymn as frail children of dust and feeble as frail. He was a member of a distinguished British political family, a member of Parliament of Scotland, and governor of Bombay, India for a time. Throughout his entire life, Grant was a devoutly evangelical believer who strongly supported the missionary outreach of his church and endeared himself to the people of India by establishing a medical college in Bombay. Although this is the only hymn by uh, Sir Robert Grant that we use today, it is considered a model for biblical worship. It focuses on the character of God through descriptive names used in the text. It exalts God with the terms shield, defender, ancient of days, maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Pay attention to the imagery in the text that God is pavilioned in splendor, girded with praise. His robe is the light, whose canopy space, chariots of wrath, wings of the storm, are some of the phrases that draw our attention to the superlative value of God. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 10, O Worship the King. Giving is also part of the worship of every believer. Scripture teaches that it is a responsibility for every believer priest to support the local church as well as missions, and this is where the giving goes. All giving is done is unto the Lord on the basis of the principle of grace. Scripture says that as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's our heads in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that all for all that you have provided for us, that you sustain us in our physical existence. You've provided us with jobs and homes and cars. and Father, we're indeed grateful for all that you have given us. And these gifts that we give now are dedicated to you and for your service, and we do so as a token of our appreciation for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning in our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship and proper uh, rapport and relationship with God the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, but whose specific task in this dispensation is to teach us and to help us to understand His Word, apply it to our own lives so that we can take that and use it to utilize it to, ex- to change the way we think, the way we live, so that we may live our lives "...in light of our future destiny, and that we might be prepared, as the hymn we just sang mentioned, to reign with our Lord in the coming kingdom." The capacity that we have to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be determined by what is developed during this time on earth. So we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. And if you have any unconfessed sin in the life, then Scripture says if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin or wrongdoing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we are totally forgiven, the slates wiped clean, and we are restored to fellowship with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit And so that he can then energize our own spiritual lives with the truth of God's word and reinstate that ongoing sanctifying ministry. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have given us such a tremendous salvation, that this salvation is not based on who we are or what we have done, but it is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when he hung there on Golgotha, between heaven and earth, during those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m., you in your justice imputed to him all the sins of humanity. With the result that every single sin in human history was paid for by Christ on the cross. With the the result that all that is necessary for us to do to receive salvation is to simply believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. At the instant of salvation, we're given a new spiritual life. And that as we grow and mature as believers, we need to keep an eye toward our future destiny. We must not lose hope. We must not fall back. We must not... Forget that we have a destiny, a future, a hope, a conviction, a certainty. And Father, as we study your word today, may you take the things that we study today and drive them home in our lives that we may not forget these eternal truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter three, verse fourteen, and we continue our study of this last and final evaluation report these EERs Ecclesiastical Evaluation Reports from the Lord Jesus Christ to these congregations in Asia Minor these seven congregations were chosen because they represented the basic trends that will take place in just about any congregation in any era of history so they represent the trends of spirituality down through the ages as we come to this particular uh, evaluation report we read in the introduction in verse 14 and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things Says the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God we looked at this in the last few weeks studying the background to this church in Laodicea we saw that it was like the other six a church in the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in the western part of what is now modern Turkey. Little remains of Laodicea today. Uh, it was located just a few miles south of Heropolis and just a few miles to the northwest of the city of Colossae. Here's a close-up here. Hierapolis was about uh, six or eight miles to the north, and Colossae about four, four to six miles to the south. Uh, To the southeast. Now, this is important because of the background that is uh, relied upon for the imagery that we find in verses uh, 15 down through uh, 20, which form the backdrop of what we will study today. We see that in each of these letters, they begin with a commission, which is an an address which opens each letter it 's addressed to the angel, this angel is not the pastor as we 've seen it 's not the human messenger who 's taking this uh, cyclical uh, revelation, this cyclical apocalypse around to these churches, but it is the angelic uh, individual the angelic oh, the angel rather who is responsible for keeping accounts of the Uh, behaviors of the local churches, the the outworking and application of doctrine in the local churches, uh, which will provide the basis for divine judgment when we come to the judgment seat of Christ. Following this introduction, this address to the specific uh, congregation, there is a reference to some aspect of the character of Jesus Christ. For the most part, these come out of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the, to the Apostle John when he was on the Isle of Patmos as recorded in the first chapter. These characteristics usually have something to do with what is being emphasized in the evaluation of these uh, local congregations. For example, we have seen in the reference to Jesus Christ in verse 14 that he is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And as I explained this in the last few weeks, the term amen is a term that relates to his deity. The Hebrew word aman had to do with that which is stable, that which provides a foundation. It it thus came to apply to both uh, faithfulness and truth. Truth is unshakable. Truth is never changing. Faithfulness is also that which always acts as it always has acted. And so the term amen is somewhat seems somewhat redundant to the next phrase faithful and true, but there you have the the noun is actually the witness and is characterized by faithfulness and truth. So the amen refers to Jesus Christ in his deity, that he is the eternal source of stability, the never changing one. In contrast what you have is a group of believers in Laodicea who are basing their hope, their confidence on that which changes, that which is uh, always unstable. They have departed from their dependence upon God. This is the basic problem in uh, Laodicea problem that also uh, infects many believers in their spiritual life, and that is self-dependency instead of God-dependency. And so in, this, in these titles of Christ at the beginning, there is the foundation for where the Laodicean believers should, should be in their spiritual life, but they're not. They are not dependent upon that which is always dependable and always unshakable. Their confidence is based on their own abilities and their own works. Second, Jesus Christ is referred to as the witness as a witness, he is characterized by faithfulness and truth. They are not neither faithful nor true in their witness. They have become lukewarm believers. They are carnal believers. They are operating on the value system of the culture around them. And so they are neither faithful nor true. And then last but not least, the Lord Jesus Christ is characterized as the beginning of the creation of God, and not in the sense that he is a creature, but this word arche, as we saw last time in the Greek, has to do with the the one who was the first in creation, the uh, preeminent one over creation, that he is the one who instituted and made all creation, according to Colossians one sixteen and 17. And it's interesting that in Colossae, which is just some four to six miles to the southeast, the Apostle Paul had to write an epistle some uh, 30 years earlier correcting them because they were beginning to become infected with this false teaching, uh, uh, sort of an early form of Gnosticism that Jesus Christ really wasn't fully God that somehow he was subordinate to the Father and not equal to the Father, and so the Laodiceans apparently were uh, infected by this same kind of false teaching. So this same title, the same verbiage that we find here in 3:14, uh, is reminiscent of the terminology and the the verbiage that Paul uses in Colossians. So we looked at the commission, the character, and then in most of these evaluation reports, there is a commendation. There is something positive that is stated by the Lord Jesus Christ regarding the spiritual life of these congregations, but that is not found in two of these, and one of these is this church in Laodicea. In fact, this is the most spiritually decadent of the congregations in Asia Minor. There is not only nothing good said about them, But that which is condemned in them is stated in a very strong and harsh manner. They are condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ because they have completely departed from dependence upon the grace of God. So we come to the condemnation, which is found in verses 15 down through 19. It's not until you get into 19 and 20 that we have the divine correction, the prescription for, uh, restoration, uh, with God. And there's a number of interesting things that we find as we go through these verses from 15 down through 18. And we have to look at this, this section in some sense in its entirety in order to understand just exactly what is being emphasized when we look at at the uh, condemnation. Because the condemnation is expressed in rather metaphorical terms. They're talked about cold water and hot water and they're lukewarm. And then the Lord says, because you say I am rich and wealthy... And I counsel and I counsel you to buy from me gold. What do these terms refer to? They're not lit to be taken literally. We understand that as we read it, but we're not exactly sure what these are to what these metaphors refer. So we have to do some background under uh, analysis. Now, in the last few weeks I've pointed out four things that characterize the congregation here in uh in Laodicea. First of all, they were a congregation that was incredibly wealthy. It was a city that was incredibly wealthy. They were located near gold mines, and uh, gold that was uh, brought there was refined in uh, Laodicea. Because of the nature, as we studied the last couple of times, because of their uh, some strategic problems that they had for their location because of the water system. They, they were not in a defensible position, so this meant that the city had to uh, take a position of neutrality with regard to various uh, conquerors that, that uh, swept through the area during the centuries before Christ. So they developed a banking center there and a trade center there, and it was a place where you could place, put your money and your resources, and it would be somewhat safe because of their uh, military neutrality. So they were very self-reliant in their uh, financial condition, as indicated uh, in A.D. 17 and also in A.D. 61, when the city was virtually wiped out uh, as a result of earthquakes, and the, c- the city refused to rely upon the uh, largesse of the empirical government and they decided they could solve all their problems themselves and rebuild on the basis of their own financial resources which they did so there was this cultural uh, independence this self-reliance that ran through the culture and this becomes important because it leaked into their spiritual life as well secondly we noted that the area was noted for wool production and particularly a black wool that was used to produce extremely expensive uh, garments. And this was a sign of, of wealth throughout the Roman Empire and they were highly prized and only the very wealthy could afford these uh, black garments that were uh, produced in Laodicea. Third, we noted that there was a medical center there and a medical school at the Temple to Asclepius, which was connected to the uh, Anatolian Temple of Menkeru, and they produced a powder. It's known as Phrygian powder, and it was used as a salve that you would put on your eyes for various eye problems as well as in your ears for various ear problems, and this was uh, sought after throughout the Roman Empire. And then the fourth thing that I noted was that there was a problem with their water. They had no source for water in the local area. Uh, In the initial uh, settlement there, they had some streams. There was a, a riverbed there, but it couldn't produce water enough water to sustain the city. So they had to bring their water in from either Hierapolis to the north or Colossae to the southeast. And by the time the hot water from Hierapolis reached Colossae, I mean reached uh, Laodicea or the cold water from Colossae reached them. Then the hot water was no longer hot and the cold water was no longer cold and it was lukewarm. And so they were known for having rather bad tasting water, water that would make you rather uh, bilious and sick at your stomach. And so that performs the background for understanding the Lord's uh, what appears to be a rather harsh critique in verses 15 through 17. So let's look at now at verses 15 and 16 in terms of this evaluation. We need to note that this is the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking to this congregation. This isn't the Lord Jesus Christ that liberal theology often presents. You go to some churches and Jesus is this manby-pamby, weak, uh, pusillanimous individual who just always loves everybody no matter what they What they, what they've done or who they are. And in some sense, that's true when it comes to grace, but there's a complete exclusion of Jesus Christ as the judge who is going to evaluate every single believer, not for salvation, but in terms of rewards or loss of rewards. And we've studied that many times when we study the judgment seat of Christ. So the emphasis that we see coming out of the verse 14, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is capable of judging us. The only one, John chapter 5, we know that uh, Jesus said that all judgment had been delegated to him by God the Father because he left his father's home and entered into human history through the incarnation when he was born of a virgin and became the God-man. He lived his life as a human, so that qualifies him to be our judge, because we're not being judged by someone who is completely different from us. We are being judged and evaluated by a human being who lived his life in humanity with all of the pressures and tests and temptations. And so it is pure judgment. And when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be standing before someone who has gone through all the same kinds of adversities and pressures and tests that we've gone through, yet he did not sin. And the same uh, same assets, the same abilities, the same powers that were available to him in his humanity are available to us. See, Jesus handled all that testing Not from his deity. Now, that would be easy. And what kind of a test would it be if he's handling temptation on the basis of his deity? He handled it, the Scripture says, on the basis of his humanity. And in his humanity, he's relying upon the same thing that we have, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Of course, he was born without a sin nature, but just being born without a sin nature is no guarantee that you won't sin. Just look at Adam didn't take him long before he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that is why Jesus Christ is referred to as the second Adam. He goes through the same kind of test again. In fact, for him, he went through it again and again and again. And in his humanity, he always makes the right decision, constantly walked in dependence upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So we also see in this, First verse, in verse 15, that Jesus Christ, as the Lord of the church and as full deity, is omniscient. And he is fully cognizant of the condition of every congregation and is therefore worthy to evaluate, judge, and discipline. Only someone who knows all the facts can be our judge, can properly, accurately evaluate everything. And Jesus Christ, in omniscience, knows every thought, every Motivation. He knows everything that goes on in every congregation, so he is worthy to evaluate. We read in verse 15, I know your works, and we'll just stop there. This phrase, I know your works, is one that is found in every one of these evaluation reports. Now, I believe that if you are using a New American Standard or an NIV or one of the more uh, contemporary translations based on the critical text in the Greek New Testament as we've studied in the past then this phrase is left out of a couple of those but it is found in the vast majority of texts and the majority text includes it it has a tremendous uh, uh, documentation behind it so I believe that it is included in every one of these evaluation reports and it is definitely included in this one there's no, no textual variant here Jesus says I know Your works and the word there that is translated "know" is the Greek uh, verb "oida," and you have two different verbs for knowledge in Greek. You have "oida" and "gnosko." And when it uh, when we look at these words, "oida" indicates an intuitive sort of knowledge. "Gnosko" emphasizes a knowledge that is gained through study, through learning, through experience. So when oida is applied to God, it is an emphasis on the omniscience of God. That God has always known all of the knowable. God knows not only everything that will take place, He knows everything that could take place. He knows everything that can possibly be known. He knows the actual events, but He also knows uh, possible events or potential events. This is brought out in Matthew eleven twenty-two to 24. Difficult passage to interpret, has some interesting implications. And one of these is that he knows what would happen if something different had taken place. He says in verse 22, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. He's talking to people in Capernaum. He says, "And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, uh, you, you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades." They had a problem with arrogance. They thought they were spiritually above everybody else. Jesus says, "For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, see, there's our potent, our possible. If this had happened in Sodom, it didn't. But if it had, he knows exactly what the response would have been." it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See, Jesus knows what would happen if you had chosen to marry somebody else or if you had chosen to go to another university or if you had chosen another career, another job. Just think of the millions of decisions you've made in the last uh, 20 years that have affected the course of your life and perhaps you had the option of three or four or five uh, five different decisions or courses of action. Jesus knows what would have happened in each one of those and all the different uh, things that would have happened on each different decision all the way out to infinity. That is the omniscience of God. He knows all the knowable and He knows all the uh, possible. The conclusion is that Since Jesus Christ has full omniscience, because he is full deity, he is fully qualified to judge and evaluate uh, the local church. He knows our works. The word there for works indicates production. He knows everything that goes on, good or bad. Works can be that which is done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It can be done that which is produced in terms of our own sin nature. Remember, the sin nature can produce morality as well as immorality. That's something a lot of folks don't understand. But when you're an unbeliever, when you haven't put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you can produce morality. There are a lot of unbelievers and there are a lot of religious systems that produce a lot of moral people, good people, people who have a certain sense of integrity. But all of that, Scripture says, is filthy rags. Isaiah states that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our unrighteousness, but our righteousnesses. So the scripture teaches that that which is done, no matter how moral or how good it might be, that comes out of the sin nature is still just worse than garbage in the sight of God. So he knows our works. That phrase indicates that he knows everything. He knows the divine good. He knows the human good. He knows the sin. He knows everything that is produced in life. And he then begins to characterize these, this evaluation, his works. And he says, I know your works that. And so now we're going to get an understanding of the works, a summation of the works that are done in Laodicea. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Okay, the word for cold is the Greek word sucros. We can understand where that has some application in uh, our language. Sucros is where we get a word for sucrose. ...related to sugar, and it has the idea of water that it was sweet-tasting, it was cold, it was refreshing. It's uh, Sometimes it's used in classical literature of that which was ineffectual or vain, and sometimes it was used metaphorically to refer to persons who were cold-hearted or heartless or indifferent. Uh, the other word that is used here is the word hot, zestos. We know where how that word has come over into English, zest is that which is boiling hot. And so this refers to water that was piped into Colossae from either Hierapolis, I mean piped into Laodicea from either Colossae or Hierapolis. Here's some pictures of the remains that we have of the aqueducts that were used to bring this water down from Hierapolis or from from Colossae. This is a cold stream in Colossae that bring in the cold water that was would be quite refreshing if it were still cold, and this is a picture of the main street in Heropolis. These were large towns much and were quite vital areas in Asia Minor. By the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. The word there for lukewarm in the Greek is kleros, meaning something that is tepid, something that is just room temperature. But because of the fact that if you bring in hot water, this this hot water that came down from Hierapolis... Uh, was from their mineral springs there of course that was something that was quite beneficial Uh, it was important medically because uh, they would go up to the hot springs and they would soak in the hot waters but of course this hot water had a lot of minerals in it and in some of the uh, aqueducts that we see you can still see the build-up of the mineral deposits inside of the of the uh, of the pipes and when this of course reached Laodicea with those various chemicals in there and become lukewarm. It was no longer of value. It was no longer usable. And if you drank it, it would just make you sick to your stomach. And the cold water that came from Colossi would likewise become lukewarm. And so it really wasn't very drinkable. And it served as an emetic. And it would just make you throw up. And the word emetic itself comes from the Greek word used in this passage for vomit. This is the word emeo, which is a verb to vomit, to spew something out of the mouth, or to spit. Now, let's take a minute and look at this metaphor and see what is the Lord talking about here. What you have probably often heard, what is an often stated interpretation of this, is that the Lord is saying that I wish that you were either cold or hot, but you're neither one. Now what does he mean by cold or hot? What you've probably heard is that cold means that you're just cold, you're completely hostile to the gospel or to spiritual things. Hot, on the other hand, refers to that which is uh, enthusiastic, that which is passionate Uh, toward the gospel and toward spiritual things. And because you're just, uh, you're just either hostile or you're extremely positive to the word, because you're neither of those, Jesus is saying, uh, you're just lukewarm. Now, now I have a problem with that interpretation because it doesn't fit the context historically and it doesn't fit the actual context of the text here. Remember, one of the primary rules of interpretation in Scripture is context. And if you look at these and you do a word study on how cold and hot are used in the Greek New Testament, this is the only place where cold is used. And you don't have another reference of hot in that same sense. So you can't uh, do word studies to back up those meanings. So we have to look at the text itself and the context. If you were a Laodicean, and you were reading this, you wouldn't think in terms of uh, that type of an illustration. You would think only in terms of the fact that the hot water that's coming down from Heropolis is usable. It's good. It's beneficial. It's profitable. Uh, that which uh, comes from Colossae, the cold water, is also usable and profitable. By the time this water gets here, it's just lukewarm, and it's not usable. It's not profitable it's not beneficial and this is what the lord is emphasizing here is that being a lukewarm believer means that you can't be used by the lord because as we'll see in the context you're out of fellowship this is more than just a believer that's out of fellowship this is a believer that is in extended carnality who is living his life on the basis of the value system of the culture around them. And as a result, they are only giving lip service to what the Scriptures teach, and it's not having any impact on how they think or how they live uh, whatsoever. Now, let's see how you get this from the context itself. The historical context suggests that both cold water and hot water were valuable. The question I have is, why would the Lord want you would ever say, I wish that you were hostile to me, that you were completely cold or indifferent to to me. Uh, That doesn't make sense. I know there are various explanations for that, but it doesn't make sense, especially in the context. If you skip down to verse 20, we see the solution. Now, this is important for us to understand because to understand the solution helps us to understand more clearly the problem. The solution is, state in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this is not a salvation verse. Perhaps you grew up in a church or you were involved in some uh, campus evangelism organization in the past that, that used this as a salvation verse. It's not a salvation verse. He's not addressing unbelievers here. Now, how do I know that these aren't unbelievers? Well, first of all, he's addressing the church in Laodicea. So he is addressing them and assuming that they are believers. That is the underlying assumption. But we have more to go on than that. In verse 19, we read, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, indicating that I am rebuking. What is he doing? He's rebuking the congregation. He is disciplining them in this very evaluation report. And he refers to them as those who are loved. Now, in English, we have basically one word for love. But in Greek, there were a variety of different words that were used for love, and two primarily are used in the New Testament. The verb agapao, which is the a word that refers to the universal love of God for all mankind in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And the object of his agapao love there is the world, which includes both believers and unbelievers. But in verse 19 here, we don't have the word agapao. We have the verb phileo. Phileo emphasizes a more intimate Love a love that is based more on attraction, a love that is uh, restricted to only believers. Nowhere in the Bible does God express phileo love for unbelievers. This is a love that is expressed in a verb that is used only for God's love for those who are, are believers, those who are members of his royal family. So that indicates that this is addressed, these lukewarm individuals at Laodicea are believers. They are in the royal family of God. They are destined for heaven, but they are rebellious members of the family who make the Lord Jesus Christ sick at his stomach. And the reason and the solution to this problem of being a lukewarm believer is what? It is getting back in fellowship ...with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the imagery of verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... ...see, they are a church that has excluded Jesus Christ from being a part of the spiritual life of the congregation. They have an external form of spirituality. They talk about the Bible... Every time I talk about this, I'm reminded of some of these churches where you see the pastor hold up the Bible and talk about how the Bible is the center of everything that they do, and that's the last time you hear about the Bible until uh, the end of the service. It's, it's, that's it. It's just lip service. It's just a form of spirituality. We're just going to kind of nod in the direction of the Bible because that's what we should do. That shows that somehow we're Christian, and then you never get into the text again but you see the scripture is such that it is the word of God that is alive and powerful. Jesus said that it is the word that the Lord uses to sanctify us. So we have to know what the what the scripture says. So they have excluded the Lord Jesus Christ. They have excluded in the same way the Holy Spirit. So there's no fellowship, there's no rapport. There is no uh, spiritual dynamic from the uh, Holy Spirit, who is the supernatural empowerment of the spiritual life, going on in this church. As a result, they are not only out of fellowship, not only are they carnal, but this carnality has gone on for so long that the church, this congregation, doesn't look and act any differently from the culture around them. They they have the same value system as the pagans in Laodicea. They are basically uh have a name of being a Christian, but they are operating they are operating like pagans. So if the solution is to get back in fellowship, then the problem is that they're out of fellowship and they're living on the basis of their own uh, resources, And that is exactly what we see in the expansion of the condemnation in verse 17. Jesus says, "...because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked." I'll, I don't have a slide I, I counsel you to buy from me gold. See, let's look at this as a, the sentence ends if you, you have to look at the punctuation here to catch the flow, and your punctuation should be that a, a period at the end of verse sixteen. Then you have a completely new thought starting in verse seventeen, and it begins with a a, a hai at the beginning because he is emphasizing their uh, their negative position. He says he's going to emphasize the solution in verse 18, but before he can get to the solution, he has to emphasize the problem. You see the same kind of thing in witnessing. There's, a lot of people don't realize they're sinners. They don't believe that they are uh, lost and under condemnation. They think of sin as some sort of uh, a really horrible thing that they've never committed. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about sin, that sin has to do with pride and arrogance and mental attitude sins are just as horrible and just as egregious and just as much a violation of the character of God is overt sins and so often in evangelism you have to get people lost before you can get them saved you have to point out the fact that that you are dead in, born dead in your trespasses and sins and as such you are already under condemnation from the justice of God and then once they realize that they're lost they realize they are in need of a savior, so the Lord follows that same methodology. Here, he points out their problem first, their inadequacies first, and he does it in terminology that is uh, that is reflective of their physical condition. Now, remember what I said at, at, earlier about the water problem. The Lord takes a physical reality, the physical water problem in Cor- in uh, Laodicea, and he uses that he uses that to illustrate their spiritual problem he's going to do the same thing here the rich and wealthy and need of nothing here is not referring to their physical financial assets they are financially wealthy but he's not talking about that here he's talking about the fact that they have transferred that uh, self-reliance to their spiritual life they are they think they are rich spiritually. They think they have become wealthy spiritually. And they think they have need of nothing uh, spiritually. So we have to understand these three terms here to, again, be metaphors. They're not referring to the their literal financial wealth, but that spiritually they think they have arrived. They don't have any problems. Uh, God has taken care of them, and they are completely self-reliant. See, they have succumbed to arrogance. And that is the problem here is that it's very easy for a believer to slip from God-dependency to self-reliance, especially when you go through the prosperity test. And these believers were in the prosperity test. They were uh, in a city that was not going through any kind of military assaults. They were financially well-off they were doing quite well and so because they were in a position of prosperity they were no longer dependent upon God in their spiritual life one of the most dangerous areas of sin that we can fall into is the mental attitude sin of arrogance there are a number of proverbs that warn against this proverbs 11:12 talks about the one who is devoid of wisdom that is another way that the uh, writer of proverbs talks about the person who is arrogant he who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. Uh, Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So once we get arrogant, we begin to become blind to certain realities about our own condition, and it's very easy then to uh, make decisions that are self-destructive. Proverbs 29:23 states a a man's pride will bring him low but the humble in spirit will retain honor. And this is genuine humility which can only come when we re- recognize that God is the only one that can do everything and provide everything for us. It's true grace orientation that we must be dependent Upon God, this is illustrated in James. James has quite a bit to say about arrogance and the dangers of arrogance. In James four six, we read, "But he that is God, the Father, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud or the arrogant. The word therefore resist in the Greek indicates taking a stand against someone. It was frequently used in military uh, context to refer to somebody who was making a, an assault." against someone else so God resists the arrogant but he gives grace to the humble earlier in James 3 in verses 14 and 15 we have a another dimension of arrogance mentioned there we read but if you have bitter envy and seek and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth This wisdom, that is the human viewpoint wisdom grounded on arrogance, does not descend from above. In other words, this may seem to work for you for a while, but its ultimate source is not from God, it's from man. And it's characterized as being earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, when we look at those three adverbs there, we have to understand something about it. earthly means that it is, has its source in the earth, in human civilization, human character, not in God's character. The second attribute, sensual, sensual is a poor translation. This is the, uh, Greek word sukikos meaning of the soul. Or it's translated natural in passages like 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14. And it refers to the unbeliever who only has a body and soul and doesn't have a human spirit. He's unregenerate. It is wisdom that is characteristic of unregenerate mankind, and that is demonic because it's the same kind of wisdom that characterizes Satan. It is based upon arrogance. Verse 16 Uh, James 3 reads, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's what's characterizing the Laodicean church is because of arrogance. They are completely self-absorbed and focused on doing whatever uh, is right uh, in their own eyes. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, reiterates some of these same principles that we have in James uh, chapter uh, 4. Likewise, Peter writes, You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's the focus. Genuine humility is dependence upon God for everything. And then he quotes the same quote as James. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time the problem in Laodicea was a problem of arrogance they were they had uh, mastered the arrogant skills now what are the arrogant skills well first of all self-absorption they were focused on me every single one of them wanted to do what made them happy what took care of them and so that self-absorption always leads to self-indulgence where we don't have any sense of restraint. We're just going to do whatever is right in our own eyes. Uh, Then we have to justify it, so that's self-justification. The more we justify it, the more we become blind to what's going on in our own lives, and that's self-deception, and then we basically become our own God, uh, self-deification. And this is what had happened in the congregation at Laodicea. They were lukewarm. They were completely hostile to God because they had become self-reliant rather than God-dependent. And when you are out of fellowship, when you are carnal, when you live in extended carnality, what you do is you begin to pick up the thought forms of the cosmic system around you, the world system around you. The, the Greek word for world is cosmic or cosmos, and that is a term I use to refer to the believer that still operates on the value system of the culture around them. See, every culture in the world, whether it's an Asian culture, whether it's a uh, an American culture, Western culture, African culture, whatever it is, has its own norms and standards, its own traditions, its own uh, system of thinking. And these systems of thinking are based on uh, empiricism, or they're based on rationalism, or they're based on mysticism, and or any mix of those. And as you become a believer, what you have to recognize is that God has spoken to us in His Word, that the ultimate authority comes from the Scripture. It's revelatory. It's not reason, uh, uh, that is, autonomous reason. It's not autonomous experience. It's not mysticism. See, reason and logic have to be fed by the truth of God's Word, the revelation of God's Word. And so what happens is that In order to get along in the culture around us, we often succumb to cultural values, and this makes us worldly Christians. We buy into that wisdom that is uh, earthly and natural and demonic. This is exactly what is going on with the congregation in uh, Laodicea. They say that I have, you say, I, have, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You see, they have completely bought into the problem solving uh, approaches of the culture around them. But this is only of temporal value. The solution is going to be in verse 18 I counsel you, Jesus Christ says, to buy for me gold refined in the fire. Next time we'll come back and look at that solution and how that impacts us because it's too easy for us to slip into cosmic thinking, thinking like the culture around us, like the Laodiceans have, and and arrogance is so subtle that it just sneaks in. And the next thing you know, we, have, we become a lukewarm believer. We have the outer trappings that we're positive. We show up at Bible class a couple of times a week, listen to tapes, but when you start looking at your life in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work ethic, in terms of ethics at work and in business, we realize how subtly the world has impacted our thinking, and we don't think differently. We don't think biblically. And so that is the focus of the solution. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for what you've provided for us in your word that we have the eternal solution to all of our problems at the cross, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and that when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, then we have an eternal solution, that you have given us a solution to every other issue in life, that we may live not within the culture, on the values of the culture, but that we have a new system of thought, and that we are to be transformed By the renewing of our thinking, this means taking in the Word of God and living differently because we have an eternal perspective. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust Him for your salvation. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At the instant you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would continue to bring back to our memory the things that we study this morning, that we may put these things into application, and that we may have our priorities shift to eternal priorities, that we may live for you, and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.